Welcome back to the program. When we think about cutting-edge technology, our thoughts turn to Silicon Valley, to tech centers around the country and around the world, to our great research universities like Stanford and MIT. When we think about technology in the government, we tend to think about failure, the failure of the government to make a simple website work, the fact that it was a big deal for the current president just to get a BlackBerry when he came into office, and that most government agencies, including the IRS, don't even function using email. In a funny kind of way, it makes you feel better about the NSA story, the idea that when it comes to technology, the government is usually the gang that couldn't shoot straight. However, what if all that changed? If the best and the brightest of technology came to Washington with the intent of controlling or subverting technology, with the resources and the power they have, they could do some real damage. And so begins the world that my guest Daniel Suarez writes about in his new techno-thriller, Influx. Daniel Suarez is the author of previous New York Times bestsellers. He's a former systems consultant to Fortune 500 companies. He's designed and developed software for the defense, finance, and entertainment industry. He's been a previous speaker at TED Global, MIT Media Labs, and NASA Ames. It is my pleasure to welcome Daniel Suarez to the program today to talk about Influx. Daniel, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Great to have you here. It is ironic that oftentimes when we think about the government with respect to technology, we do think about it in terms of failure and their inability to get it right. Yet, in some ways, that's probably a good thing sometimes. Well, I suppose it's a control. It's a it's a mechanism that that moderates their influence. But you know, you look at other aspects of of, uh, government technology efforts, and I'm thinking in particular cyber and cyber espionage in America is foremost in the world with those types of technologies. And they're very advanced. And as, as we've seen from recent revelations, they are pervasive and very capable. They're, they're even doing an end run on some other advanced technology companies in Silicon Valley, like Google. It's interesting to think about why some areas of the government are so good at this. As you say, they're almost pervasive, and other areas get it wrong all the time. Well, I, I imagine it is uh, difficult to take a colossus like the federal government, and try to make some sort of technology solution that's going to, to cross departments and divisions. Um, certainly, the, the things I just described, surveillance, were very focused on what they were trying to do. And typically, they were outward-facing and then turned inward as part of that defense. And I think a lot of the efforts that fail are typically those that are trying to get a, a bunch of squabbling departments to cooperate. Then the other area that you talk about beyond surveillance that relates to much of what you talk about in Influx is this whole idea of robotic weaponry. Yeah, and that is another area where certainly there's uh, tremendous uh, advancements being made by by government. And uh, we see this uh, casting a long shadow around the world. As a matter of fact, uh, so successful, or at least perceived as successful, enough that 70 other nations are now emulating us. So technology does that. When it succeeds, it spreads. Of course, when it doesn't, it tends to die out rather quickly. There's a Darwinian selection in technology. One of the things that you deal with is this idea of the government trying to decide kind of what technology we should have, what technology we shouldn't have, what can we handle, what can't we handle. Talk a little about that. Yeah, well, that decision, this Bureau of Technology Control, that's the antagonist in my my book, Influx, is basically feeling that they need to protect us from ourselves. This idea that, that human imagination is very dangerous and that they were created in the Cold War with the eye to protect the social fabric from rapid technological innovation. And that's really the conceit of the story. 
And so in, in Influx, we have a, a young physicist, John Grady, who creates a gravity mirror, radical innovation that can redirect gravity. And instead of winning the Nobel Prize, he's grabbed by this organization and imprisoned because, again, they, they fear the social disruption that radical innovations like that could make. In some ways, it makes us think about the social impact of all this technology way beyond the areas we think about it today with respect to social networking and creative destruction in certain areas of business, that if you carry this out a lot further, there are really interesting scenarios to think about with respect to the social, cultural, and political impact of technology. Well, you hit on what I was trying to achieve here, which is basically... I wrote this story on an epic stage with epic technologies like fusion and artificial intelligence and quantum computers, but I wanted it to relate back to what's going on today. Because, you know, quite frankly, technologies that we do not see, that are hidden to us, have tremendous power over our lives, and in turn the people who operate those software, that, that software and that technology, they in turn have power over us. So that's everything from surveillance, and it's also the just pervasive data mining as we move around the web and as we use our smartphones, we've become reliant on these technologies and on these social networks, but we don't have quite the same social contract in these new environments that we did in regular life. And I think there's a, a great deal of transparency lacking in how we interact with them. That's what I wanted to do here is kind of pull that out to the light to say is these hidden concentrations of, of, of technology that create imbalances. Now, this used to be the case between the first and the third world, that you had very technologically advanced societies facing less technologically advanced ones. But I think we're seeing that more and more within society, the first world, that people are having different levels of knowledge about what's going on. And that can really tilt the plane. In many ways, it goes beyond transparency. It also addresses the issue of complexity, because as this technology becomes more advanced, even some of the stuff like our smartphones today, people have less and less of an understanding of what makes it tick. Well, absolutely. I mean, you're carrying basically a, a small computer. And, and of course, as these devices get to the point where you can't take the battery out and it's connecting to your social network and, and pinging back to all sorts of networks. It, it calls into question, you know, who the device is working for. Is it working for the companies that you bought it from? Are you fully in control of it? And it's that level of complexity. We, we sort of ride technology now as opposed to, to using it. And, and that is an issue I definitely wanted to explore in this book. And again, what I try to do in my books, and if I have a brand, it is this. I'll take fairly nuanced, complex technological issues, and I'll try to explain them through entertainment. I'll try to go through a thriller, for instance, and make the technology very authentic, very realistic. But hopefully, as you're reading that entertaining story, you're starting to pick up some of these things so that later when you see the news, you say, hey, I heard of that. And that's actually a real thing, really, and then hopefully you understand the connection. Because, again, it takes a great deal of keeping up to date on technology to really fully grasp what's going on and how radical the changes are. Given how pervasive and the corrosive impact of fear in our society today is, is there a danger in amping up the paranoia too much? Not just in the context of your book, Stan, but overall the degree to which people become too afraid, too paranoid about technology, and what the negative impacts of that might be. Oh, I absolutely think so. And, and let me just say that in this book, as in my others, uh, a lot of times uh, I'm portrayed as a doomsayer, but people <laughs> who actually read my books know it's quite the opposite. For instance, in Influx, 
what I'm talking about is the need for open exchange of ideas. And that really our best hope is an exchange of ideas and constant incremental change as opposed to digging in. Now, it's not like the BTC doesn't have an historical precedent. If you look back, let's say, to the, to the third the Roman Inquisition in 1600s, the church of that time was trying to stop the spread of the printing press. They didn't want a free exchange of ideas. They were trying to stop the telescope so people couldn't look into the heavens. So this type of thing, it is conceivable that it could happen. And certainly we see certain aspects of our society, whether they be corporate or government or whatever, using technologies we don't know about. And, and basically, I don't think we need to be afraid of change. We, we should pull all of this into the light and have transparent exchange of ideas. The other aspect of it, though, is that it is all happening so quickly, that the change is taking place so fast, that we've seen creative destruction from small companies and then consolidation, so that now, even within this new landscape, there's four or five companies that are the new versions of of Exxon or Mobile or whatever, and that new companies will come along and create their ways to take those on. Well, just look at companies like Twitter, created in 2006. And and what's their valuation? It's it's probably almost equal to something like GM at this point. These companies and these changes are happening so fast. And and note that the people who are conceiving of them are not whom you might think they would be. They're certainly not existing massive powers. They're individuals who have a radical idea, and they go out and implement it. And it transforms society. So you're right. The pace of technological change and its impact on society is is tremendous, very fast-paced. And these networks are, in fact, becoming the social fabric. It's how we interact with each other. And this pace of, ch- of change, I think there is a, a somewhat of a backlash of, of fear about this rapid technological change. And, and that, again, I think is something that we need to ride it. We need to embrace it and, and try to, to cope with it because I think once a technology's time has come, there is no stopping it. All you can do is affect its direction. I want to talk about this idea of who that you touched on a moment ago. Who is generating this technology? Because it's become an interesting issue here in the Bay Area, and, and I think it goes to some of the broader things that we're talking about, that many of the young people, and most of them are young, that are coming up with these radical ideas that you talk about, are people that are not thinking about, they're not trained, they're not, they don't come from the world where they think about the broader social and cultural or political context. It's simply the technology itself. And that arguably creates a huge vacuum for others to take advantage of that. Well, certainly. Although, you know, you mentioned young people. I, I recently read a study, and I'm trying to remember where it was from, but basically uh, these researchers set a challenge. They took basically straws and a couple of materials, and they presented various groups with the challenge of, you know, the first group to stack these uh, items to the highest wins. And they had MBAs and engineers try to go through this task. And what they found was that kindergartners did the best job of it because they were so willing to experiment. They had no preconceived notions. They just tried and tried and failed repeatedly until they got it right. And I think that's where young people, they just experiment with this stuff. They, they, and that's how a lot of these combinations come about that suddenly turn into something big. And, and that, I'll give you a good example. The cell phone was around for a long time. And it changed things a bit. But it's when it combined with the computer and it became a mobile computer, suddenly that was a radical transformation. The combination of the computer and the phone into a handheld unit just amped up the change level radically. 
And of course, it was the rapid adoption of this device by young people and their, their concepts of how they could create apps to create a whole other community that accelerated it even further. So sometimes the technology individually exists for quite a while, but it's when they're combined in new ways. And if I have anything as a brand, it's that. I, I very often in my stories look near-term and combine the realistic existing technologies in new ways to try to see what might happen, sort of exploring the terrain ahead. Should the government take on the job in some way, maybe not in the kind of nefarious way that, that you yeah, deal with yeah. an influx, but should the government take on the job in some, some respects of thinking about these things, of examining what the impact of this technology really might be? Well, no doubt they do. And I think certainly as national defense issue. Because again, technology knows no borders, especially with cyber espionage being a big issue. Technology spreads very rapidly. And so it is both an economic and a social and a national security issue. So I think from the national security side, certainly there will be think tanks and scenario spinning groups that will think about these combinations of technologies and think what the ramifications might be of rapid adoption of, let's say, drones or, or cyber warfare. Uh, but as far as controlling innovation, that is something that I think is very dangerous. Because again, we don't know who's going to have uh, the new and potentially useful idea that's going to solve a lot of problems. And when we get into situations where uh, established authorities are trying to protect us from ourselves, I think that sort of thing ends badly, even if it started from a very noble place, the uh, desire to protect people. There's a very bad track record for this sort of thing. And so I think we have 7 billion people on this planet, and we have some very serious problems facing humanity. The idea is you want to have everybody working on that problem, because you never know where the next Einstein or Galileo is going to come from. Is there a way to have some kind of a line between studying and control? Because beyond the national security issue... There's also the economic issue in terms of looking at the long-term impact of this stuff and how it will change the economy of, of the country of the world. Yeah, yeah, I, I could see that. And that's where you get into uh, groups or individuals or organizations that are heavily invested in the status quo are, of course, going to resist change. They're going to do it because they like the situation currently as it is. But I think the lesson of history is that that constant incremental change embracing it and constantly changing just a bit. Certainly nature follows this. This is, this is how species evolve over time and why they sustain. And I think that's a lesson we need to learn, even at the institutional level, that there is no such thing as perfect security. You have to accept some level of risk, because that's what life is. The other part of it, though, and you mentioned it with respect to Twitter, for example, and how quickly they've grown, what's different today if anything is different, it's the speed of that change, the rapidity of it, and our ability both as individuals, emotionally and intellectually, to cope with it. Yeah, yes, and I'm sure anybody who has children certainly feels that way, too. Uh, you know, from my involvement with IT security, I sometimes think that a parent nowadays has to almost be like a, you know, not a Stasi intelligence service, but you at least have to be aware of, of these other avenues of, that information can come into your house with it's, uh, computers, social media, all sorts of different ways that are very new. And these are, again, influences within your household. And then you can extrapolate from that, multiply it in every household, every business. Um, there are rapidly new 
social fabric being developed. And again, our, 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 best, our best route is simply to let it run its course and try to react. Because again, if we try to control it or prevent it, I think that uh, puts a chill on the idea of exchanging ideas. Uh, and, it, and it stops people from innovating. If we take a look at the really strong centers of our culture, it has always been that idea of innovation, of not realizing you can't do something, doing, do something. I mean, we went to the moon. It was very difficult to do. And we did it. Nobody had ever done it before. We just tried things. And that goes back to the kindergartners I was talking about before. If you really embrace the possibility of failure and a little danger, you, know, you, you really are safer than if you try to just be secure all the time. Of course, the other side of that, which we're seeing in the, the kind of backlash to all of this, is the batten down the hatches mentality that you see everywhere from, from organizations and institutions that adopt that to families that adopt it, even with respect to kids sometimes. It's unsuccessful, but the effort is made. Well, uh, if you take a look at history, for instance, I saw a diagram uh, fairly recently. It showed the, the range, if you will, of children going back a century. And then you saw these concentric circles of, of this range of, of where children traveled unattended, shrinking decade after decade after decade, so that, you know, in 1900, it was not at all unusual for children, uh, you know, eight years old to go five miles unattended to do things, to do chores, to go to town. And whereas now, it's, it's hundreds of meters from that. And you think about that, you know, is life really that much more dangerous now than it was in 1900. It's just a different perception of how we live and, and basically what risk is. And I would venture to say that it's actually probably safer today than it might have been then. Mm -hmm. So why is it that we would perceive that we're in so much danger? Why is that, do you think? I, I tend to think it might be media, certainly sensationalism. I mean, we consume media, and now, of course, eyeballs click through, all of that is worth something, and that, of course, relates back to technology. But how, I think it's also probably a bit leisure time, how we have, and also we have screens everywhere constantly, so we're exposed to media, even if we're sitting in an airline seat. So I think, uh, whereas in the past we might, we might have been talking to each other or reading a book, we are constantly connecting to the, to the whole through technology. And I think the race then is, of course, to get people to look at what you're putting out in media, and that means a bit of sensationalism. So, for instance, we uh, generally have a feeling in this country that crime is out of control, and yet it's been dropping for years. And that's an interesting uh, <laughs> situation. But I do think that that's perception. I don't think it's reality. The interesting conflict, the interesting dynamic, is that to the extent that perception becomes reality, how that artificial reality, that incorrect reality, runs headlong against technology and change and things that are dealing with absolutely the present. There, there's an interesting well, disconnect there. Well, okay, look at this. We, we have screens and instant access to information, and yet, like you said, that doesn't mean the information is necessarily good. And so uh, that is another balance we're trying to strike, because I'm sure all of us look at things that come through, let's say, an email or our social media networks, and we think, Holy, wait a minute, that can't be true. I think we're starting to, to take things with more of a grain of salt. Because just because it's on the Internet doesn't mean it's true. And yet we see countless times, even, even uh, news organizations, falling for things that have not been fact-checked simply because of the pace 
everybody's racing to try to be the first to say or spread some idea. And so, uh, again, we would think that these always connected technologies would make it easier to have very accurate information spread quickly. But I always like that quote that said that you know, the, the truth will still be trying to get its pants on while a lie goes halfway around the world. And, and maybe that's part of just the, the way we work psychologically, that we're still in some ways uh, very primitive creatures using very advanced technology. I suppose coming back to what you write about in Influx, the question then becomes to what extent does the government really understand these issues and what, to what extent can they really act on them? Yeah, and I think that would be true of Silicon Valley companies as well. I mean, we have everything from Wall Street to technology to power grids, all of these very complex systems. And I could probably name a couple where there are millions of lines of code that even within a single company, there won't be a single individual who understands it all, much less how these systems interact with each other. So I think what we've got is a, a system that we barely comprehend and, and of course, as you said, it's changing rapidly, and we're in direct competition with other countries and cultures and companies that are rapidly changing, and so that pace of change keeps accelerating. So that's why I think when I, when I look at efforts to create uh, you know, a secure solution or a permanent security, I think that's uh, an illusion. I think what we need to do is constantly be changing. That's our security. And accept the fact that some of our systems will be compromised, but you make them compartmentalize, again, much like nature does. So there's certain parts of our systems, whether they be data systems or financial systems or power systems, if they fail, the whole doesn't fail. The overlay to all of this, though, is artificial intelligence and where that brings us. And, and the more of that that enters into the equation, the, the less we have control, and then it becomes even more than, as you say, just riding the technology. Yes, and certainly I think the issue with artificial intelligence is First of all, that if you're talking about narrow intelligence, let's say bots, then you see shades of this in things like a, a search prediction with Google, uh, autonomous vehicles, all sorts of things. Artificial intelligence is very much with us, not generalized intelligence that's, that's our intellectual equal as, as generalized, but it is pervasive and it's all around us. A, a lot of our devices and machines, our automobiles, have artificial intelligence built into them. And one of the things that I really like to address in my writing is the fact that this is essentially a means to magnify the will of individuals. And, and I mean that simply that this. If you create an artificial intelligence, uh, a narrow AI that's widely used, or let's say is uh, roving around the web doing things, let's say trading stocks, it magnifies the power of an individual over the group. And so in some ways it distorts a democratic society because it magnifies the power and the decision-making and the influence of individuals over the group in general. And the reason I think we should be concerned about that is the idea of a, of a democratic civil society is that you have all these separate minds with all these conflicting interests debating with each other, and generally that has served us very well because it's a good corrective. We don't go too far in one direction or another. And when you get into a situation where some small group has designed a system that is using AIs to magnify their influence, let's say, on the group, or to set down strictures for how we deal with each other, let's say, through a social network, that really distorts that conversation. And it's something I think we should be concerned about. It, the other question is the role of a democratic society, the way in which a democratic society can function, 
in this kind of brave new world of technology? And are there disconnects there that we haven't solved yet? Yes, and, and that's why it probably surprises people that I say that we need to embrace this constant change, especially in light of what I just said. But again, I do think it is this constant exchange of ideas. For instance, the idea that I just set forth there, there might be people who agree with that, they're concerned about it, and then they create a different system, a different social network that perhaps gets more adoption. So I think it's that constant iteration that we embrace. We never solve our problems, per se, but we're hopefully solving different problems. Because if we're solving the same problem over and over again, we're not advancing. Daniel Suarez, his new thriller is Influx. It is just out from Dutton. Daniel, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Oh, it was a pleasure, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.